family, as we were hearing, hearing earlier, how we are part of a family when we're a Christian in a, in a local church. And it's my privilege to be able to bring God's Word to us and preach this morning. Um, if you've been here for a few weeks, you'll know that we're going through a message series going through the Old Testament and looking at a series of messages to help us understand how the Old Testament relates to the New and um, how we see Christ through the Old Testament. And today we're going to be looking specifically at the book of Judges. So um, if you have a Bible, uh, I recommend you can turn to the book of Judges although the, the verses will also be um, projected when we get to those. But let me pray first and foremost as well, so that we uh, ask God's help as we come to hear God's word. Father God, we thank you that you still speak to us today. And even though we're looking in some of the oldest texts of the Bible, we know that they are still alive and living and relevant and speak, you speak through them to us. And Lord, I am desperately keen that this morning you speak. Do not let everyone here this morning only hear my voice. But I pray, Lord, that you would speak by your Spirit into the hearts and souls of all of us, myself included. Thank you that you have promised not to see your word return empty, but you will accomplish your will through it. And I pray this morning that we would be affected afresh by what you'd say to us and transformed more into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, before we get to our text this morning, which will be um, largely from Judges chapter 2, I want to start off with a little story. This is the story of a little boy, young boy, um, blonde hair, blue eyes. It's, it's me. Um, from my childhood, I have a lasting memory that relates to today's topic. It's from um, a visit to my cousin's house, who was a little bit older than me, and uh, I've always looked up to him. He was a childhood hero. And uh, one day I went to visit to his house, and I came across in his bedroom a, a graphic novel, a comic book of sorts, of the book of Samson, the life of Samson. And I don't remember many much of the details from that graphic novel, but I do remember being mesmerized by what was in it. I remember stories of a, there's a lion in there somewhere, there's ripping gates off of town uh, doors, of, off their hinges, there's beating a small army of people with a donkey's bone. Of course, there's that hair thing with the, uh, the, will he reveal the secret of his strength to, to the love of his life? Will he, won't he? And eventually he does. And he gets this unplanned haircut and loses all his strength. And the bad guys gouge out his eyes. That's, that's really gnarly. <laughs> but then right at the end, God gives him his strength back and he destroys this huge number of the enemy in this tragic finale. And I remember reading that book, mesmerized, every page, thinking this is an amazing story. And my overall impression is that, was that Samson is pretty cool. He's a pretty cool hero. And to be honest with you, I still have to work hard to read the biblical story, the real biblical story that we read in Judges, and see anything other than a kind of a, a boy's own adventure. And it's not just the story of Samson. There's actually full of these stories in the book of Judges. There's a story of Gideon and how he vast, defeats a vastly superior enemy with just 300 men. There's a story of this lady with a tent peg 
That's another gnarly story right there. And there's one about a, a guy who loses his sword by thrusting it into the belly of an evil king. That's a personal favorite in my household. Perhaps, like I was, you are somewhat familiar with these stories, and you have memories of them, kind of a filtered version. And though you know that there's some details in these stories that are um, not particularly wholesome, overall, your general impression, and the lasting impression, is that they're, they're telling us about a heroic group of people in the history of the people of Israel. And if, if that is your impression of the book of Judges, that's a problem. It's a problem because at the surface level, a simple reading and careful reading of the text, not simply looking at the pictures in a graphic novel like I did, shows that that's not the main theme of this book. In fact, it would be hard to say that it's even a sub-theme of the book if you read it through carefully. Not because it's not there, but because as you actually read more of the accounts of these judges, and as, as the, the person recording the accounts actually gives more details of their lives, the more details we have, taken as a whole, their lives are not all that heroic. If you're looking for a book of heroes, Judges is not it. A plain reading of the book, which I really recommend you do maybe over this next week, it should at least leave you amazed, appalled, confused, sometimes with a sense of revulsion. And not just at the heroes, the individual characters in the life of Israel, but at the people of Israel themselves. And we'll consider that in a little bit more detail in a minute. But having the wrong impression of this book is also more of a problem at a more personal, deeper level because it leaves you unaffected. Or at least it leaves you unaffected in the way that God intends to you to be affected. If it's simply a jumbled collection of curious, interesting, occasionally bizarre stories, then it may well pass the time to read, but it won't essentially change you. Perhaps, if, if that's your impression about these heroes, you may be inclined to go away to try to imitate them, to try harder to be an, a hero in your own life somehow, and that's not a bad thing. But the fact that it's not the primary point of this book, as good as it sounds in theory, it's in practice. It has no lasting power to change you. Not where you need it most. In actual fact, it could leave you discouraged when you fall short of the hero you want to be. If that's you, if that's your view of the book of Judges as mine used to be, I want you to know that um, in a sense... Um, the book of Judges to you becomes an ornamental tractor. I don't know if you've heard that expression before, an ornamental tractor. You probably haven't. You're probably thinking, is that a strange English expression? Uh, well, it is in the fact that I'm a strange Englishman and I just made it up. But, <laughs> but if I explain to you what I mean by it, hopefully it makes sense. Uh, not far from where we live, one of our neighbors has a nicely painted old tractor on their front yard uh, as an ornament. It's bright red, it's quite eye-catching, it's kind of cool actually. And I've seen others around, around the town, different towns in the area this time of year particularly, sometimes decorated with displays around harvesting or thanksgiving. I've even seen one in a children's play area, um, which is presumably there for the kids to play on and jump around on. 
An ornamental tractor is an interesting thing to look at. It may even be a good thing to play on, but it's not the original purpose of the tractor. It's not doing what it was intended to do. I'm sure no one at John Deere was designing this camshaft and thinking, I must get this absolutely right so that it looks really good on the town square. The Book of Judges is not an ornamental tractor. It's not there simply to look interesting or to entertain kids, and nor is any book of the Bible. God preserved the Book of Judges and preserved all of Scripture for the purpose of showing us more about himself, more about his son, and more about the way of salvation through him. So, our intention this morning, my intention is for us to understand this book correctly, to put the engine back in the tractor and get it working again. And I trust that if we do that, we're going to see that the main theme of this book is that the God of all faithfulness calls and equips unfaithful people to follow him faithfully. The God of all faithfulness calls and equips unfaithful people to follow him faithfully. Now, it's important that we see how the book of Judges is connected to what goes beforehand. So, if you remember, over the last couple of weeks, we've heard um, from Pastor Jeff about the life of Moses. And then last week, we heard from Mike Lilly about ex- the Exodus and, uh, and what that f- uh, meant in the life of Israel. God showed his faithfulness to his promise to Abraham to give his descendants the land of Canaan, and that's where we get its name from, the promised land. He initiated this move out of Egypt towards Canaan in this dramatic fashion, displaying his power and authority as the only God of heaven through sending the ten plagues upon Egypt. But it's because of the people, the people of Israel's sin and lack of faith in God on their journey out of Egypt into the, the wilderness before they get to Cana that God punished the people and caused them to wander in the desert for 40 years until that generation of Israel passed away. And God was going to give the promised land with all the blessings of knowing God and dwelling with him and all the fruitfulness that comes to that with that to a new generation. So when Moses died and and passed away, the leadership of Israel passed from Moses to his assistant, his assistant Joshua, and Joshua led God's people into the promised land. And he did this, and everything went very smoothly, and everyone lived happily ever after. The end. Well, not quite. So what happened? Why did Israel not live this idyllic life in the land of promise, the land promised with blessings and an abundance? Well, part of the task of settling in Canaan included dealing with the incurrent inhabitants whom God said to destroy because of their idolatry. And the conquest under Joshua starts well. It starts with the destruction of Jericho, which was clearly at the hand of God, and we read about that in Joshua chapter 6. But after that, there are some serious road bumps along the way where they clearly don't follow this idea of destroying everything that reminds them of the inhabitants. You can read about Achan and his coveting the treasure that they recover from Jericho in chapter 7. And then in chapter 9, we read rather than destroying some of the people, some of the nations there, they're actually deceived into making an alliance with a local tribe, the Gibeonites. 
But overall, the conquest continues under Joshua, and the land is divided up, at least in theory, not necessarily completed yet, but it's divided up in theory between the 12 tribes of Israel. But at the end of the book of Joshua, the conquest is not yet complete. And Joshua charges Israel to remain faithful to God and obey all of his commands. And at the end of that, as he puts this promise before the people, the people all swear to follow God, not to turn to false gods. And the book ends with the death of Joshua. And that's when we get to the book of Judges. Now, very conveniently for us to understand a summary of the book of Judges, and conveniently for me as someone wanted to preach from it, the book of Judges contains a nice summary of what the book is, is about and kind of the theme through it. So that's what we're going to turn to. So if you turn to Judges chapter 2, um, Judges is um, the seventh book of the Old Testament, if you're working away from the front. Chapter 2, we're going to read from verse 11 to verse 23. And I think it will be projected as well if we need that. So Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people has transgressed my covenant, that I commanded their fathers, and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, in order to test them, whether they would take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. We're going to see from that summary passage, and as we dive into perhaps some other verses through the book as well, again, that the main point of the book of Judges is that the God of all faithfulness calls and equips unfaithful people to follow him faithfully. So the first thing we want to see in this is that man is unfaithful. Very quickly, after Joshua, after the death of Joshua, we see in verse 11, 
that the people turned from God to other gods, the other gods that were left in the land. And although it's summarized by that single verse, I want us to understand the weight of that and how the book of Judges really reinforces that through the book. So I'm going to read other verses that then give more detail and repeat this theme through the book. We don't have them, I don't have them projected, so just, just listen. And listen for the theme here. Chapter 3, verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. 3, verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Chapter 6, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of of Midian seven years. Chapter 10, verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. And then finally, chapter 13, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. What we see there is not simply a repeating cycle of endless disobedience. In fact, in verse 19 of the passage we looked at, it says, Whenever the judge died, they turned back, and were more corrupt than their fathers. So this cycle that we see in the book of Judges has actually been described as a downward spiral of more and more corruption and abandonment of God. In fact, again, if you read through the whole of the book of Judges, you see this this, uh, transfer away from obedience to God to further and further disobedience and abandonment. And we see that when we compare the opening verse of the book and the last verse of the book. Judges chapter 1, verse 1 says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? So the the Israelites at that point are seeking God. They're wanting to be obedient to him. Fast forward to the end of the book. Chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So this book shows a transition away from doing what's right in God's eyes to the people of Israel seeking to do what is right in their own eyes, which by definition is evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's not that God has been totally forgotten. It's just that they've wanted to adjust, kind of compromise, and kind of shape God a little bit differently than the way he's presented himself so that they can have other gods as well alongside him. We see that if we contrast uh, that opening verse where they're seeking God and asking who's going to go up against the fight of the Canaanites. In chapter 20, a very similar question is asked. Chapter 20, verse 18 says, The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, Who shall go up first to us to fight against the people of Benjamin? We see they're still trying to talk to God, But now they're asking, not how do we obey your commands and tackle the people in the nations around us? They want God to tell them, how do we fight among ourselves? 
Benjamites are a tribe of Israel. And that is what has happened. They are no longer at war with pagan nations. But by the end of the book of Judges, they're at war among themselves. And the main point for us is that we must recognize ourselves in, this pa- in these pages if we are to hear God's message to us today. The Bible is consistent to reveal that ever since the fall of man, our natural inclination is to do what is right in our own eyes and abandon what is right in the eyes of God. It doesn't matter if you take one step out of the light or a hundred steps out of the light. You're still in darkness and not in the light of God. If you're not a Christian, I know that that can be uncomfortable to think about and uncomfortable to hear. Actually, even as a Christian, it's uncomfortable to be reminded that by ourselves, we cannot do any good. In fact, we can only do what is evil and drift away from God. The Bible makes abundantly clear that with regards to humanity, there is no us and them. Apart from God's grace, there is only us. and We are all prone to abandon God at every turn. But the good news is that's not all that the Bible has to say about us. But we want to ask the question, how did it happen? How did Israel turn? Why would they decide to abandon the God of Israel and turn to the gods of the land? In verse 13 of chapter 2, it says they abandoned the Lord and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. These are gods in the Canaanite culture that were worshipped because they brought blessing or seemed to brought bring blessing, particularly on in agriculture and kind of fertility of the land and in prosperity. And if you remember what the Israelites' first impression of the land was when Moses sent out some spies into the land of Canaan in Numbers chapter 13, they came back with these grand reports of awe and amazement that this is a land flowing with milk and honey. It took two guys to come back bringing just one cluster of grapes. And they reported that it was amazing fortified cities. And in our verses today as well, in chapter 21, we see why they were left there. Sorry, verse 21, it says, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their father did or not. So Joshua was intentional to leave some of the remaining nations to see if the people would be obedient. That word test, to test Israel, is the same as we read in Genesis chapter 22 regarding Abraham and the test that God gave him with his son Isaac, whether he would be obedient. It was a test that Abraham passed. The test in the book of Judges is repeatedly failed. And why was it failed? Well, Israel had none of the agricultural experience that they saw in the land of Canaan. They weren't used to building these big fortified cities. And rather than to trust and obey God entirely by destroying the inhabitants and destroying and removing all their practices, Israel decided that it would be better to do something a little different. They thought it would be prudent to learn from the nations. Learn what's the secret of their success and copy them. They trusted in worldly common sense rather than obey God's word to them. 
even though in this case the two were in opposition. It meant following the world and disobeying God's word to them. Now, I don't know about you, but I imagine that you're not tested by worshipping Baal nowadays. If that was presented in front of you, I'm pretty sure most people would say, I'm good, thanks, not interested. But how are you tempted today and tested in your faith to adopt the ways of the world because it's convenient and it looks appropriate, it looks like that's the way for success, even when those are in opposition to God's ways and what he has said it is to be obedient to do? Does suffering or prosperity or loneliness or relationships or politics tempt you to abandon God and what he calls you to, calls us to in obedience, and instead to re- embrace as a replacement the world's hope for solutions in those ways? In our fallen nature, just like the Israelites and judges, all of us are inclined to abandon God in favor of what is right in our own eyes. All of man, all men are unfaithful. But in contrast, in our second point, God is faithful. Israel's behavior should shock us and fill us with fear when we identify with them. God's behavior should shock us and fill us with rejoicing. It is not shocking that he was provoked to anger in verse 12. It is not shocking that he allowed Israel to be oppressed by enemies in verse 14. What is shocking is what we read in verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. He intervened not to finally extinguish this disobedient and faithless people, but to save them. Why? Why would a holy, why would the holy, all God, all sovereign God of Israel, not destroy the people in this book? He's already displayed his power into Egypt. Why not again? He's already displayed it to Noah. Well, why would he raise up judge after judge after judge to save his people? Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Barak, Gideon, Tola, Jair, Jephthah, Ibzan, Elon, Abdalon, Samson. Time and time again, over a period of time that collectively is over 400 years, what can explain God staying his hand to wipe out an unfaithful people. The only explanation is God's faithfulness. God displays his faithfulness in the book of Judges. His faithfulness to his promise to Noah in Genesis chapter 9 to no longer, never again, destroy the people in one cataclysmic event. He displays his faithfulness to Abraham, his promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, to maintain descendants and give them a land. Now, when we read in verse 16 that God raises up judges, it's helpful to make sure we understand what he means by that. 
the judge in the book of Judges is not really like a judicial figure as we might think of one today. They were more of a military leader and their intention was to bring deliverance from an oppressing enemy. So we see God's faithfulness in raising up these judges, but we must be careful not to think of God's faithfulness like he's a good dog. He comes when he's called. He does what we ask him to do. He's quick to forgive. It's not that man has something over God. You promised. Come on. Get with it. Hurry up. Fetch my slippers. Man does not have anything over God. Rather, God is faithful to himself and to his character and to his word. God was not surprised by Israel's behavior in Judges. He was fully aware of what was going to happen when making those covenant promises to his people. God chose, God chose to make those promises knowing their unfaithfulness out of his own goodness. And by his nature, he cannot break them. And we see in this book his faithfulness to his, to his promises displayed. And sometimes he even displays it by sending a judge even when the people aren't even asking for help. Several accounts in the book talk about how the people cry out in distress and he raised up a judge to save them. But others say they're in distress, but there is no, there's no record of their appeal to God. And yet God sends a savior before they even ask or cry out to him. God's aid to his people didn't come from them sorting out their lives, didn't come from them trying harder or being really, really sorry this time. God was faithful to deal with them on the basis of his grace. We've heard this and encountered this recently before as well. In his covenant with Abraham, the covenant, that promise of grace, of undeserved favor made solely with God's commitment. We all need to remember that we are, when we are confronted with our own unfaithfulness, our hope of being made right with God is not by trying harder to be faithful, but our hope rests in God's faithfulness to be gracious, to be kind to those who don't deserve it. God revealed himself to Moses and described who he was in, in Exodus chapter 34. We read this, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is the God revealed to Moses and the people of Israel. And it is the same God revealed to us today. But it does not mean that God is ambivalent when his people abandon him. He's not ambivalent when we abandon him. Judges shows us the third thing is that when God calls, God calls his people to follow him faithfully. God's faithfulness means he will never, ever abandon his people. But God's holiness means he will never, ever abandon the demand for purity and holiness in his people. God gave another set of promises to his people in the covenant with Moses, 
specifying the law with the promises to bless obedience and promises to punish or curse disobedience. And in particular regarding the promised land, God gave these instructions to destroy the inhabiting people and all reference to their gods. And we see a reminder of that in in Judges, um, a few verses earlier from our passage in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. We read, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say to you, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Give an illustration or a picture of what that is like. I know um, many of you, most of you, are trying to turn me into a Patriots and Red Sox fan. And I am, I'm okay with that. Um, but you need to know something about me. That deep in my heart, in my heart of hearts, I am a Liverpool football club supporter. And that may mean nothing to you, but over time I'm going to try to make you Liverpool fans. <laughs> so imagine, well this is not too hard to imagine, but Kelly and I are thinking about um, buying a house next year. So imagine that um, we go house hunting and we find the, how, the right house. It's, it's got everything we're looking for. It's just, just perfect. Just there's one thing. It was, um, its, its owner is the other English soccer fan in New England. Um, and he supports Manchester United, who is, some of you know, Manchester United and Liverpool are rivals. And he is a big-time Manchester United fan. Okay, we're talking the wallpaper is Manchester United, the lampshades have Manchester United logos on them, the bedsheets, the blankets, everything, the whole nine yards, Manchester United. And he's willing to sell the house to us on one condition. Everything else can go, the wallpaper has to stay. And for whatever reason, a moment of insanity, we accept. And over time, I notice strange things starting to happen. I find myself, when I'm checking the scores, that I'm paying a bit more attention to Manchester United. And I'm actually finding myself strangely pleased and, and kind of happy when they win. And then, at one point, I hear my kids, some of my kids enjoy playing soccer, at one point I hear my kids talking among themselves, and like kids do, they're talking, who are you going to play for when you're older? One of my children says, I'm going to play for Manchester United. <laughs> that, that is a little bit of what idolatry is like. Going after other gods, valuing other things, other people over God. It's a little bit like that, only much, much worse and far more appalling. The Bible portrays it not like a fan of a sports team, but like a relationship between people. And not just any relationship. It portrays it like a marriage relationship. So that illustration should more accurately be that 
the owner insists not on leaving the wallpaper, but on leaving his wife. And rather than thinking that's weird, we allow her to stay in our house. And not only that, she sleeps in our bedroom. And not only that, she enjoys the intimacy of a relationship reserved in marriage between one man and one woman. And as I say that, I am appalled and, and repelled by the very image, and, and we should be. We're, that is our right response. And yet, in verse 17, we see what the people did. They did not listen to their judges. They whored after other gods. When rightly understood, the intimacy and exclusivity of relationship that God intends with his people, with you and I, with us. When we understand that rightly, we understand why God calls us to follow him faithfully. He will not tolerate a second functional God in our lives. Theologian Karl Barth said this, Alongside God, there can be no other God, or God ceases to be God. And all that we really have are two idols. We've already seen that left to ourselves, mankind is unfaithful to God. But the fourth and final thing we see from the book of Judges is that God not only calls his people to follow him faithfully, he also equips us to be faithful. Just like the people of Israel, time and time again they turned away from God and were unable to change, so we are unable to change who we are at their very core by ourselves. I cannot fix my inclination to turn away from God by trying harder, by praying more, by reading my Bible every day, by throwing out things that are idols to me, because my heart generates new ones. New ones to take their place, and maybe it's even the pride in how hard I try to follow God. The book of Judges points to two things, two things kind of that come after the book of how God equips unfaithful people to follow him faithfully. And we see the first in verse 18. It says, Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. Whenever God raised up a judge... He saved the people all the days that he lived. God's people need a godly leader to follow, a savior of sorts who God will be with. And the judges did that imperfectly. But the book ends with pointing to a new office, an office that God would appoint over his people. We looked at it earlier on. Um, let me read that again. Well, it simply says, In those days, there was no king in Israel. The book of Judges concludes with a transition now into a new phase in the life of Israel, one in which there are kings over his people. And God would use these kings to lead and to save his people. And they, in turn, point to the one true king who perfectly walks in God's ways, Jesus Christ. He came to save us not just from our enemies, the enemies of Satan and the world around us and outside us, 
But like no other king could, he died on the cross to save us from the enemy within. To take on himself the wickedness of my inclination to abandon God. To take that upon himself and to finally and forever deal with God's judgment for our sin by receiving that punishment upon himself. And then by conquering sin and death through resurrection, we now have a perfect and eternal judge and king to follow forever. But Jesus doesn't simply lead from his throne. He dwells with us and in us by his spirit. That's the second thing that the book of Judges points us towards, how God equips his people to be faithful. The Spirit of God coming upon His people, giving them supernatural grace and power to follow Him. Again, when you read the book of Judges, you see seven times the phrase, the Spirit of the Lord came upon then a particular judge. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel, came upon Gideon, came upon Jephthah, came upon Samson four times. After Jesus' ascension to His throne... At the day of Pentecost, we see the start of the Spirit of the Lord coming upon all believers. He is no longer reserved for a few. The Holy Spirit dwells in and with all who would turn to and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and King. And through His power, we can overcome our sinful inclination away from God. And we can grow in wholehearted obedience to him and to his ways. The Apostle Paul prayed for the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Left to ourselves, the book of Judges shows the darkness of the human heart that is compelled to follow a downward spiral of abandoning God. But the book of Judges also points us to the full truth that is revealed in Christ Jesus. That by God's grace and the power of his Holy Spirit, not only is the downward spiral not inevitable for the Christian, but he has also made it possible for us to walk in an upward spiral of increasing Christ-likeness. That is indeed his purpose for all of us in Christ. The God of all faithfulness calls and equips unfaithful people to follow him faithfully. If the band could come up. In my introduction I said, if you're looking for a book of heroes, Judges is not it. The book of Judges is a book with one hero. One deliverer. The all-faithful, all-patient, all-loving, all-gracious and merciful God of Israel and Jesus Christ. Church, let's follow him faithfully, our Lord and Savior, our King Jesus Christ, abandoning all false gods that may remain in our lives and may be a snare to our souls by the strength and power that he gives in his spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we 